So this evening we will begin chapter 5 of the Confession, and which covers providence. We'll cover the first three paragraphs. So we'll do chapter 5, paragraphs 1 through 3 of of providence from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And just to give us a helpful roadmap for the logic of how the confession holds together at this point, uh, let me share a section from Chad Van Dixhorn's commentary, uh, Confessing the Faith, A Reader's Guide to the Westminster Confession. Van Dixhorn writes, The first three chapters of the confession remind us that both the world around us and the Bible that has been given to us reveal that there is a true God who has decreed all things. From there, the confession goes on to tell us how God executes those decrees. And I would remind you all of Westminster Shorter Catechism 8, God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. And so Van Dixhorn goes on, the previous chapter outlined how God created all things. He spoke and there they were. In this chapter... And from this point forward, so Dr. Van Dixhorn is saying, this is a turning point in the confession. From this point forward in the confession, he goes on, we shall see how God, the great creator, providentially upholds all things. Or, as the letter to the Hebrew says, he sustains all things by the word of his power. And it's really important to keep that perspective in mind up front. And I bring it up for us so that we have this fresh in our minds that that we're dealing with not just uh, arbitrary providence, we're not dealing with uh, 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 random providence, no, we're dealing with God's providence. This is a logical progression that we make throughout the confession of faith because there are so many questions about God's providence that are speculative. Why did he do it this way? Why not that way? I just received an email yesterday from an old friend who I haven't spoken to in years who had all kinds of questions about, well, why would God make this a sin and not that a sin? Why did God make the home to function this way and not that way? Why did God only provide one way of salvation? And on and on and on her questions went. And, and, and we all have uh, some form of those questions often. And what we need to keep in mind is that even though I think the majority of those questions are sincere and, and honest inquiries, that we cannot treat these matters apart from who God has revealed himself to be. In other words, God's decree and God's providence are not isolated individual matters divorced from the reality of who God is and who has revealed himself to be in his word. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but what has been revealed belongs to us, and to our children. The point is that God's word does not tell us everything that there is to know about God, but rather it tells us what we need to know about God. And when we try and interpret these doctrines, such as his decree and his providence, through who he has revealed himself to be, they will make a lot more sense. And what we need to know about God, in a nutshell, is that he is good, and that he is powerful, that he is all good, and that he is all powerful, and he's working all things according to his purpose. 
In fact, uh, we spoke of creation last week, and the great theologian Gerhardus Voss writes in his uh, one of his volumes, the, the Eschatology of the Old Testament, that the very nature of the fact that there is a creation logically necessitates a consummation, that is, that God is working creation out to his intended ends. And oftentimes, this will be <clears throat> beyond our comprehension. How could a good God who is working all things to a good end, have this bad event be part of that. And the reality is, that's life. There are a lot of times that people with more wisdom or more experience than you will tell you to do something that seems uh, counterintuitive. And yet it winds up being the best possible advice. It's a bit of a silly example, but I often think of this in, in the old movie, The Karate Kid, where uh, Mr. Miyagi is training Daniel for a big karate tournament by having him wash his car. And you remember there's the scene with wax on and wax off. And, and this doesn't make any sense. It seems like a, a total waste of time. It seems totally counterproductive until you realize that he's actually getting habitually ingrained in his muscle memory uh, necessary blocking motions. Now, if it's true that people who are wiser than us can tell us things and can use things and methods that seem counterintuitive and wind up working out in the end, how much more true must it be of an all-wise God? And so with that said, what we want to talk about tonight from this segment of chapter 5 uh, of providence is three simple things. First, in the first paragraph, we'll discuss the reality of God's providence. From the second paragraph, we'll discuss the instruments of God's providence. And then finally, we'll discuss God's freedom in providence. So the reality of God's providence, the instruments of God's providence, and the freedom of God in providence. First of all, the reality of God's providence. And now at this point, I'll read paragraph one of chapter five. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And so under this paragraph, we, we see kind of what can be neatly divided into four subpoints. We see the right of God in providence. Uh, that is that he is the great creator of all things. We see the extent of God's providence, that it goes from things from the least to the greatest. The principle of God's providence that is, it's according to his infallible foreknowledge. <clears throat> and then the, the purpose, the goal of God's providence is his own praise and glory. Now, this first paragraph begins by asserting the reality of God's providence. And in many ways, this is a rehash of information that we developed on God's decree in chapter 3, but it's helpful to review. Notice how the confession begins this chapter identifying God as the great creator of all things right off the bat. And this is significant in this chapter because when we deal with his absolute providence and sovereignty, we need to remember what gives him the right to such things. Well, what gives him the right is he's God. He's the creator. He made it so he can govern it. He created all things and in him all things consist or 
hold together, Colossians chapter 1 tells us. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, and the whole list of attributes that we covered last fall in chapter 2 of the Confession. And on top of that, he is also, by virtue of being the creator of all things, he is the owner of all things. Let me read for you briefly Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12, uh, where the psalmist writes, sorry, just flipping there real briefly, Psalm 50, beginning in verse 10, uh, Asaph, the psalmist writes, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And if you believe that, if you believe that all that is belongs to God, then the rest of what we have to say about his providence in this chapter will make perfect sense. But if we deny that, or we forget to apply it, then we're going to run into all sorts of problems. So that's his right his claim is that he's the creator of all things. What's the extent? How far does this extend? He upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures. That's you, that's me, that's the ant, that's the bird in the air, all of it, all of our actions. And and, and this is things even from the greatest to the least. Uh, we spoke about this when we did God's eternal decree a couple, feels like a couple months ago now. It must be true that he governs all actions from the greatest even to the least, because if he governs the greatest, the greatest actions are made up of a bunch of little, comparatively smaller ones. And these words altogether just tell us that he is in every conceivable way sovereign over his creatures and their actions. It includes everything that has ever happened or ever will happen. It's all under his providence, your birth, the breath that you're taking right now. My daughter's loose tooth that she's scared of losing. It's all under his perfect sovereign providence. When he does it according to his infallible foreknowledge. That's the principle of his providence. That is his immutable or unchangeable counsel of his own will. Now let's talk a little bit about foreknowledge for a minute here. Because God does not dispassionately know anything. He does not just passively know things. Rather, his foreknowledge is based on what we might call his, his perfect love of all of his creatures. That is to say that his, his sovereignty is not, or his providence rather, uh, is not in relations to things that he doesn't care about. It has to do with those whom he foreknew those whom he loved, you might say, before the foundations of the world. And what is the goal? What is the goal of God's providence? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God's providence is his working all things to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. One way or another, all that there is, will serve the purpose of glorifying God in at least one of those ways. Now, the best, the, the premier example uh, of this is the cross of Christ. It is the best example because it shows God's justice in punishing the sins of his people. In Christ, on the cross, all the people of God had their sins 
fully, totally satisfied for. Justice was rendered on him. It also shows his goodness in providing a substitute for his people. It shows his mercy in being willing to send his only son to be that substitute. And it shows his power because he was able to raise him from the dead. And it shows his wisdom in that this, this one event, this singular event, fulfilling all of the prophecies and the promises and the hope in this one divine supernatural event. And it all redounds to the praise of his glory. And every other event that ever happens in the created order will serve in one way or another to glorify God in his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, before we move on, let me explain briefly why that's a good thing. The, the purpose or the meaning of creation, of life, of the world, of everything cannot arise from within itself. Because then it's arbitrary. There is no real purpose. There is no way people ought to feel or ought to think. There is only what is. Now, you may have preferences. You may have things you don't like. What, Whatever, that's fine. But because God is sovereign in the exercise of his providence... That means that there is a purpose to life. As I referenced uh, Gerhardus Voss earlier, creation <clears throat> necessitates a consummation. Be because there is a being, the true and living God, outside of the created order, that means there is a purpose, there is a meaning, there is a, a point behind everything that happens in your life. Nothing is immaterial. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul would say, right now, counts forever precisely because God is real because 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 his 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 existence is this the necessary precondition for this reality but further because of his providence because he is involved in his creation we can be assured we can have confidence that that purpose that he has will be fully realized one day not always in the way we think or imagine, but he will be glorified. And G.I. Williamson, in his commentary on this portion of the Confession, writes, Such considerations of these do not give us the knowledge of how God controls all things, but the evidence, the fact, that he is able to do so. And in that, my friends, we find great comfort. That God is willing and able to guide all things to its culmination, to its purpose. Now, let's consider the instruments of God's providence. Let me read again from the Confession, <clears throat> chapter 5, paragraph 2. Although, in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause of all things, all things come to pass, immutably and infallibly, yet, by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And this is a vitally important distinction that is not often well made in our circles. 
Because on the one hand, <clears throat> we want to say that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. And we want to say that because that's what the Bible says. God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. In fact, if you wanted me to give a, a three-word summary of Reformed theology, it would simply be this. God is sovereign. And that's true because God is, to use the language of the confession here, he is the first cause of all things. And by first cause, what we mean is that he is the primary cause of all things. Uh, why is the, the sky cloudy today? Because God said it was going to be cloudy today. Why is the sky blue on other days? Because God said it was going to be blue on those days. Why did you get the grade that you did on your history test? Because God decreed that that is the grade that you would get on your history test. Nothing happens that is separate from his sovereign control. But, at the same time, the confession states and the Bible teaches, according to that same providence, he has ordered all things to fall out according to the nature of secondary causes. So again, going back to the illustration about the weather and the cloudy skies and the blue skies, and why are they that way? Well, on the one hand, yes, it's because God decreed that that's how it would be that day. But on the other hand, there's a meteorologist out there who can give you a perfectly scientifically based rational explanation for what's going on with the weather fronts and what's going on with the light refracting from the sky and, and all of these things that would, would explain the, the system that God has in place for those things. And at the same time, the, the, the grade that you got on your history test. Well, it's a direct result of the, the, the effort that you put forth and the natural ability that you have to absorb the material. Those would be uh, secondary causes. And those are in play. And, and all of these secondary causes fall out necessarily, freely, or contingently. In other words, what we're saying is that they come about um, not because God uh, forced them against their will to come about this way, but because that is how uh, God uh, made things to be. Uh, the other important thing to keep in mind is, as A.A. A. Hodge notes, the manner in which he, that is God, controls his creatures and their actions and affects his purpose through them is in every case perfectly consistent with the nature of the creature and of his action. Again, God did not force you to do poorly on the test, but he decreed in accordance with, 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 with your nature what would fall out. God does not force somebody to sin against their will. Rather, he decrees in accord with their nature that they will act uh, accordingly. And that's that's why the sin uh, originates from within themselves and they're not able to blame God for it because they, they sin because they wanted to. In the same way, when I do good as a Christian, I do good because I want to. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians that it is God who is at work in you both to will, that's to desire, to intend, to purpose, and to do his good pleasure. And that's really a great statement on, on, on primary and secondary causes. Why do, why do Christians do good things in a positive case? Well, 
And the primary cause is because God is at work in them. The secondary cause is because they want to as a direct result of God being at work in them. Finally, we'll consider briefly the freedom of God in his providence. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 3. God, in his ordinary providence, maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. This section is pretty straightforward in meaning. Uh, 99 times out of 100, God operates within uh, creation according to uh, means. Means, as we described above, are either necessary in created order, the, the free choices of creatures or contingent. However, God remains free. He is not bound to work according to those means. He normally does. It's unwise to expect him to do otherwise, but he is able to and does on occasion. God delivers his people often beyond means of explanation, either in medical situations for which we have all prayed many times. There is no there are there are people in our church right now that medically speaking should not be alive. There is no medical justification for it other than an act of God. He did it of his own free will. He is not bound to do so. There are examples uh, where God delivers his people in, 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 in battle, in military conflict, such as uh, in, in Gideon's army in Judges chapter 7, where he has this big army and God says, I'm going to need you to whittle this down. And he whittles it down and he whittles it down and he whittles it down until it's a teeny tiny little army. And God uses that little army that, that should not have won to win the day so that he could work uh, uh, beyond the means that, that he might get all the glory. But he also works above means. This is every uh, barren womb passage uh, in the Old Testament where God uh, speaks into existence things that are not as though they were. And sometimes this is uh, very rare. God works against such means. That is to say, he works not, not only... Uh, without the means that he's normally instituted for things to act, but he works directly in, in opposition to them. Uh, one example would be um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving the, the fiery furnace. They should have died. But God supernaturally worked against the normal sequence of events and preserved them. The greatest of these is, again, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody else that went through that should have stayed dead. But God worked against the natural means. Why? So that he might save your soul. Now, what this paragraph is a fancy and technical way of saying is that when it boils down to it, God is free to work miracles when and how he wills, how he sees fit, and thank God that he does, because without miracles, none would be in the kingdom of heaven. Not just in the incarnation and the resurrection, though certainly those, but every single salvation is a miracle. You know, it's a real sweet time in my home where we uh, have a new baby, and when we take her out, people will always uh, stop us and say, oh, what a, what a precious little miracle. 
Well, what a what a precious young child! Such a such a miracle! Such a such a special thing! And, and that they did that with with my older two as well. And, and you want to say at some level, uh, no, that's that's not a miracle. Uh, that's the natural uh, result of. <laughs> Uh, of of the marriage bed and, and nine months of pregnancy pregnancy you get one of these that's the natural normal mode of things but everyone who is born is done by the normal ordinary means that god has instituted everyone who is born again however that requires a supernatural work of God where he works uh not only not only without means but but against them because we were as the bible says by nature children of wrath by nature Romans 5 says we were enemies of God hostile to God Romans 1 says we were haters of God and God saw fit because of his because of his his mere love which with he loved us and the free grace of his of his affections for his people he saw fit to go into your heart and remove that heart of stone that you had that was hostile to him that was at enmity with him and to give you a heart of flesh that loves him and desires to obey him and wants most of all to make much of the lord jesus christ and he is able to do this because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to this earth to live the perfect sinless life that you and I were required to live according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, according to his providence. And then he was handed over to wicked, lawless men who crucified him according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And this same Jesus was raised according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then he ascended into heaven and has poured out his Holy Spirit so that you and I could be those who were born uh, not, not of the flesh, not according to the will of man, but according to God that we might repent of our sins and trust in Christ and live forever. And that is all according to God's precious providence. Let's pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you that you sovereignly rule and reign over all things. And we know that there are many uh, events in our own lives that are difficult to work out and reconcile with this doctrine that you are all-powerful and all-loving. And yet we know that it's true. Help us to trust and rest in your providence this and all of our days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.